You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me again. Tonight's episode, I'm going to kind of cut right to the chase. I had uh, initially some other things lined up, but this um, this is an issue that's ongoing in the hobby and in the greater community that seems to be um, of the utmost importance. So I wanted to address it tonight. So I'm going to dispense with the usual, uh, you know, the usual intro and get right into it. Um, unless you've been living under a rock for the past few months, you have in all likelihood heard about a significant piece of legislation that was initially called the America Competes Act of 2022. Last month, it passed in the United States House of Representatives and is currently before the United States Senate. The original purpose of the bill was to bolster the U.S. economy through increased domestic production and other means. However, hidden within this 3,000-page bill are some substantial amendments to the Lacey Act that will adversely affect our rights to work with non-domesticated animals. If the bill passes the Senate as written and is signed into law, the effects on the hobby and anyone who works with non-domesticated animals will be more damaging than anything we've seen before at a federal level. In short, these amendments will substantially limit or halt our abilities to ship animals from state to state. It will limit what we can and can't import. It will also create a white list of approved species with everything else not on that list being designated as injurious by default. And it will also grant the federal government the powers to make additional decisions, such as listing any species as injurious without public input or comment. These amendments will affect not only breeders and vendors, but also zoos, educators, veterinary practices, conservation efforts, and more. And to be clear, this is not just a frog thing, a large constrictor thing, or even a herp thing. These amendments will affect everything from invertebrates to fish to birds to mammals and everything in between. It affects us all. I will say, though, that the issue as it affects our community is not the bill itself. It is the language in it that will amend the Lacey Act. So right off the bat, a clear distinction, and I think many of you who are listening to this who are familiar with what we're talking about, um, the issue is not with the greater bill. It is really specifically just with the language that would amend the Lacey Act. So once this situation came across my radar, I, uh, I thought for quite some time about how to address it on the show. And as a content creator who's dedicated to furthering our knowledge base as hobbyists, breeders, conservationists, and researchers, I felt a deep obligation and a responsibility to use my platform in a way that would address the matter and create awareness in a way that is both accurate and productive. I must admit, I, I struggled for some time over the best way to do this. And thankfully, um, I guess by providence and through a very good mutual friend, I was put in touch with Phil Goss. And Phil is the president of USARC. USARC is the entity that first noticed this issue with the bill that will affect us all. And USARC is the only legal entity that consistently advocates on our behalf. Phil has more than graciously agreed to talk with me tonight, and I'm thankful for him making the time to do so. I essentially made a list of many of the questions that I had, and I'm sure many of you have as well. I'd like to kind of have Phil clear the, you know, clear the air, set the record straight in terms of what all this means to us and what we can potentially expect. So uh, I hope you guys are in for a good listen tonight because um, we've got a fair amount to cover, and um, I want to thank Phil for making the time. So um, Phil, first of all, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. I, I really appreciate it. How are you doing tonight? I'm um, fine. Thanks for having me. And before we go any further, that was a great introduction and summary of what's going on. So obviously we'll touch on some finer points, but I mean, you covered it extremely well. So thank you for putting that together. Well, thank you, Phil. That, that's, that's kind of you say, I appreciate that. Um, first of all, why don't we get a little bit of background first? Because I do have some, I know this is a United States specific issue and I have listeners outside of the country and um, many of them are kind of curious as well. And for anybody who's not familiar with USARC and what the organization's goals are, can you tell us about USARC and, and what, the, uh, what the organization does for the HERP community? Yeah, absolutely. So we are USARC, United States Association of Reptile Keepers, and we are a 501c6 nonprofit advocacy group. And our mission is to protect the freedoms of responsible reptile and amphibian owners and also businesses related with reptiles and amphibians. So we do work at, at all levels of government in the U.S. So other countries aren't quite as familiar with how our system works, but we have city laws, county laws, state laws and federal laws. So 
at any one of those levels, uh, there can be proposed bans or other overreaching regulations. And that's where USARC puts out alerts and then works on those issues. Yeah, I'm on that mailing list, which is, um, it's it's nice being able to stay current and whatnot. It's also a little frightening the extent to which uh, the number of alerts that go out. And um, it's usually every couple of weeks I, I get one. Uh, Phil, how did you end up as, as the president of USARC? What's, what's your story? The, well, the, the quick story on USARC was there was a, a former president who, who went away and I sent a one-line email to the USARC board of directors that said, who's stepping up? And from that, it, it led to me being president after some interviews and such, obviously. And now it's been nine years, a little over nine years since that happened. Well, you're doing a good job, Bill. Phil, so thank you. Uh, I think on behalf of everyone, thank you very much. I, it, it's, I know it, it can't be uh, the easiest uh, position in the world to essentially be the head of the only organization that advocates for, for herps. I'm curious about the bill. Why don't you tell us about the American Competes Act of 2022? And I have some more specific points, but I mean, it, it was started as a means to boost the U.S. economy. Where did this language to amend the Lacey Act come from? And why is it buried in this gargantuan bill? Yeah, it's so House Resolution Resolution 4521. It actually was introduced last summer um, and it was actually it had a different name. And it began with a package of actual bar, bipartisan bills that had gone through a committee and been been vetted, gone through the hearing process and everything like it was supposed to. And then it just sat for months, never had a hearing. And then it emerged again with a new name, which was the America Competes Act. And it had all these extra sections on it that weren't bipartisan and never went through any hearing process like legislation supposed to. And then it, it, it only squeaked out of the House because Democrats have majority in the, in the House. So it was a party line vote. Um, I think it was 122 to 110, something like that, that it passed the House and got sent to the Senate. So. As far as exactly who included this in the, the House bill, we don't know. Um, but yeah, it was one of those things. We put out a, a post that was a little more informative than our first alert calling it dirty politics, because sometimes that's just how these things work. Um, it just got snuck in there, and now we're dealing with it. How do you discover something like this? That, that was When I found out about this, it's, it's, it's one thing to look at a bill that's maybe a few hundred pages. I mean, this is a 3,000-page bill. How did you find this? Yeah, so we have alert systems in place that get us most of these. This one, actually, though, it was our federal lobbyist who gave us a heads up, uh, got an email that said we heard there was some animal rights related issues in the America Competes Act. So then we went and tracked it down and found this at Section 71102 of the America Competes Act. So we found it. So there was some heads up on it. And honestly, it's, it's a pretty basic way to find it. Um, you do a, a keyword search on the whole bill. So we just did a keyword search for Lacey Act, and then there it was. Um, obviously, that helped us find it in, a, I think it was 2,912 pages uh, of that bill. That's incredible. I, I always, every time I see an alert, I'm always curious as about like which person is able to, to, to find this. But I guess you make a good point. The, the keyword search is, uh, now I kind of now I kind of feel foolish, but I'm a little bit behind the times with technology. Um, so. What does the language in the bill say? I mean, again, you covered the summary extremely well. So it's the Lacey Act amendments are only four pages, so less than 1% of the overall America Competes Act. But again, your summary covered really well. There's, We keep saying there's three basic things that are going to happen. Uh, one, that it's going to overturn USARC's federal lawsuit victory, uh, where four, four judges agreed with us that FWS did not have authority to ban interstate transportation of animals. So that's going to be gone. It's going to give FWS the new emergency designation that you mentioned, which they can literally, the same day as it's posted in the Federal Register, have a species be listed as injurious, which means no more importation and no more transportation across state lines. And they don't need any science or validation to do that. Um, after they would list it, they have three years to come up with the science to support it, and then they can decide if they want to keep it listed or not. And then the third big issue is the whitelist that you mentioned. So 
SWS has a year to create a white list of animals that can be imported into the U.S. Usually we deal with blacklist or species that are banned, which is how the injurious list currently works. So this would kind of be the opposite. And it's just, it's a flawed model. I mean, there's a reason that you don't see whitelist and they just, it's the wrong way to go about this. Yeah, I know for the listeners outside of the U.S., I I talked to a lot of people in Canada and I talked to a lot of people overseas, people in the U.K., people from Australia. And I know in many of these countries, they live on the the whitelist, especially Australia, because they're only allowed to have native species. And it's extremely limiting for them. And I know that a lot of a lot of countries are kind of envious of what we have here in the U.S., but the, the way our government set up is is a little bit more, um, you know, complex. We'll say when it comes to regulations. I want to back up a little bit though, and I want to start off with the injurious uh, salamander list that that had happened a few years ago, and it had caused a tremendous amount of, of problems. I guess you could say in the herp world, because essentially, two, I think it was 201 species of, of caudates were declared injurious due to the, the potential risk of, of B-Sal. And U.S. ARC was able to get that lawsuit overturned, correct? Yes, that was part of our lawsuit, yes. And then how, do, how did you go about doing that? Because that your victory is essentially going to be overturned once this, well, excuse me, or if this legislation passes through as written, right? Correct. So our our lawsuit essentially made the argument that the United States Fish and Wildlife Service did not have the jurisdiction that they were claiming that they had. And that's where four judges agreed with us. Uh, They said that, again, FWS had to treat the 49 continental states as one entity and didn't have authority to ban the transportation between the 49 continental states. Now they can ban transportation between Hawaii and California or Hawaii and Connecticut or Guam and Florida, you know, they can do that if it's something outside the 49 continental states, but still U.S. ARC jurisdiction, but they can't do it within the continental states. So this would essentially undo that though, right? This would basically create one federal, I guess, policy law, I guess it would be, that would govern every state in the union, correct? Yes, part of it is one part of that amendment is actually going to reword the Lacey Act, and FWS is going to claim that authority to ban interstate transportation of species listed as injurious. I'd like you to give us a few examples of what that would mean, and why don't we why don't we pick three examples, and you 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 tell us what it would mean to these three individuals. We'll start off with example number one. Let's just say that we have a breeder who makes a living off of going to expos. And this breeder lives in, say, Texas and likes to go to expos to vend in Missouri. What would it mean to to that person? Yeah, so that person would only be able to sell whatever species he or she is working with within the state of Texas. If it's listed as injurious, he could not transport those species across state lines. So he would be confined to whatever is in Texas. And that has all kinds of issues. It, it creates a genetic bottleneck, uh, so he's not going to be able to get animals from outside of Texas to, to work with. And uh, another issue that's not written in the law, but we're afraid of, is that individual states will kind of look at whatever the whitelist is and ban every species that's not on that whitelist. It, it's certainly a real concern. It's not written as part of these amendments, but it's it's something to worry about because some states have done that. Even Montana <laughs> banned the large constrictor snakes, which they can't live there. There's no threat of them up there, but they even took action before the United States Fish and Wildlife Service did, just when they started talking about listing those large constrictors as injurious and just put them on their prohibited list up there. So that that's certainly a, a possible consequence. Yeah, I, I want to touch on that too, actually, but Example, let's just, I'm just curious. Now, for the average person, we, we, we talked about the, the breeder, the vendor. Let's just say, I'm, I, I live here in New York, okay? Now, let's just say that I wanted to move to Pennsylvania after I retire and I wanted to bring my collection with me. What would that mean to me? Yeah, that's another crazy part. Some people think this just means commerce and it has nothing to do with commerce. So yeah, if you had a pet animal that was listed as injurious, you cannot take that animal with you if you move 
between states. So you either have to euthanize it or surrender to somebody you can keep it in the state that you're leaving. You absolutely cannot take that animal with you. It would be a, a federal crime to take your pet with you across state lines. And that would incur a very, very significant penalty, given that it would be essentially a felony, right? Yeah, I think uh, up to $20,000 fine and five years in prison for taking your pet with you across the state line. (laughs) (laughs) Unbelievable. Well, last person here. Now, let's just say that you work with, um, well, here, here in the dart frog world, we have some people who do importation from sustainable sources, meaning these are people who work uh, in a country of origin with species of frogs, mostly dart frogs, and they export everything to the U.S. or Canada or wherever through, through a clean trade, meaning the frogs are tested for disease, they're clean-free, um, they come from an area that is designated to be basically like like a farm, I guess you could, could say, the idea being to take pressure off of wild populations, meaning we don't want people pulling dart frogs from the wild, so we have a dedicated area where they're farmed and raised in captivity in the country of origin and then exported legally with all the paperwork to the U.S., to Canada, Europe, wherever. What would it mean to that person? Yeah, it's a good possibility that that would no longer be possible. Uh, Along with this whitelist, FWS has to create a definition for the term minimal quantities, and we have no idea what that's going to look like. We don't know if they're going to say a species that's been imported by 10,000 is going to be okay and on that whitelist or if it's going to be a hundred. So if it's a species that has not been heavy, heavily or regularly imported, it, it's quite possible it will not make that whitelist. And there, there's all kinds of other little nuances along with that. Like it, it's possible species that look like other species would not be allowed on that whitelist because law enforcement wouldn't be able to tell them apart. But yeah, certainly for people who are importing smaller quantities of things, those animals could be banned because they wouldn't make it as minimal quantities and get on that whitelist. Which could be very difficult if you're trying to work to get a species established so that it doesn't need to be pulled from the wild under less than um, less than appropriate circumstances, right? Yeah, and that's something else people have got wrong too. It doesn't matter if it's wild or, or captive bred. It, it's listed by species, so it doesn't matter the source of that animal. Yeah, that's one of the issues that I... You know what? We'll, we'll touch on that now. Actually, I one of the things that I take issue with is um, I get. Let's, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. I guess you say semantics, meaning the you know the shades of meaning of things. And when you use the the term wildlife trade, that term automatically implies a negative connotation. You know what I mean? So, I mean, technically, a llama that you have in a you know, on a farm, I guess could technically be considered wildlife or a, you know, a snake that is 20 generations removed from the wild, having been bred in captivity for decades is still considered wildlife. So how do you go about changing people's opinions to, to look at the wildlife trade as not something that is illegal and detrimental, but something that can be positive and worthy of protective legislation as opposed to prohibitive legislation? Yeah, that, that's super tough to change people's perception of things. And, you know, the big issue we come into working with legislation is that uh, these terms all have different definitions, depending on if it's a state or federal or international bill. I mean, wildlife can have 100 different definitions, the same with wild animal and especially exotic animal is when we see the most broad definitions, because sometimes exotic animal might include just the 10 species that are named in a piece of legislation. And sometimes it means every species not native to a particular place. So, yeah, it's tough. And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, most people hear the term wildlife and it, it just doesn't bring, depending on the conversation, it doesn't bring a good connotation in their mind. And and how you change that, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you go about that. Uh, there are certain things that we kind of watch in our messaging. Like sometimes we'll say bread under human care rather than captive bread. Um, but you know, that's when you're getting out in the masses, when sometimes it's, it's important to use the term captive bread, depending on who you're talking to. So it's just, it's a tough situation. I don't have a good answer for you. Yeah. I, I'm always just, I'm fascinated by like, you know, shades of meaning. And w- when you tell people that you keep exotics, it, it it's just, 
it's you know if you say to someone look i have a dog or i have a cat it's it you don't get the same impact that you say well i i have frogs or i have tarantulas or i have snakes and i mean it's so difficult to get people to accept the fact that like look this is not necessarily a domesticated animal by your circumstances but it essentially serves the same purpose as any other animal that you would have it's a source of commerce it people keep them for their enjoyment people breed them people work with them in zoos it's just it's it bothers me that there are so many millions and millions of people in the country who keep exotics and it never really made it onto the mainstream radar that this is not the unusual bizarre thing that only a small margin of people do i mean it's it's i mean do you have any idea how many like how many people and like the the impact of it financially is in the country i mean this we have to be generating like billions of dollars in revenue right oh yeah it would be huge it would be in the billions uh certainly easily especially when you add in aquaculture and aviculture and all the other industry oh yeah it's 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 in the billions easily um depending on on where this goes and you know you you hit on some important points and one being that i mean reptiles and amphibian keeping that has just taken off so much in the last 10 to 20 years I mean, it, it's a lot more mainstream than people realize, but it's still, you know, fairly modern. So you, you certainly don't see it treated like dogs and cats. But I mean, it's it's five percent of American households have a pet reptile now. That's five million households. I mean, it, it's fairly common or one in every 20. However you want to look at it, it's it's still fairly common, but it, it's still not it's never going to be as mainstream as dogs and cats. The irony behind the bill that always got me was this is supposed to be a bill that's designed to boost, uh, not, uh, boost the U.S. economy. But by doing this, I mean, my, like, you tell me what your opinion is. My opinion on this is, this is basically making a choke point. I mean, obviously, no one's going no to come into your house and seize your animals unless you're doing something that's really, really questionable. But I mean, at the same time, this seems to be just sort of cutting the head off of, of commerce entirely. I mean, did, did anyone give any consideration to the economic impacts of this in terms of how many people it's going to put out of business. I mean, I, I know that there's a similar issue on a smaller scale in Florida where I believe they breeders have up to, I think it's what, like 2024 or something like that to be able to, I guess, liquidate whatever they have or whatnot. I mean, is what's happening in Florida kind of an idea of what's going to come to the, you know, what's, what's coming if this legislation passes. I mean, what's happening to all these people who are in danger of losing their livelihoods down there? Yeah. It's a, a couple separate issues there. Certainly Florida is, I'm going to word this badly, but it's just the way I'm going to word it. Florida is causing problems for the rest of the United States is what it's coming down to. Because with these injurious listings, the Lacey Act doesn't say that it has to be possibly injurious, which is most, most of the time for listings, it's similar to invasive species. It doesn't say that a species has to be injurious in 25% or 50% of the United States. It's literally any tiny spot in the United States. If a species could be injurious or invasive, it could be listed as injurious under the Lacey Act. Uh, that's the scary part. There's no reason that people in the other 99.5% of the country should have to deal with it. But because of the southern four counties in Florida and the species that can live there that can't live anywhere else in the U.S., the rest of the country might might be dealing with these injurious listings. So that would basically mean that if you live in a northern state, like let's just say that I'm trying to pick something that's kind of harsh, like South Dakota, North Dakota, where it generally gets very, very cold. I mean, obviously, a reticulated python or a, a dark frog is not going to survive up there indefinitely, right? I mean, but by what it says in this bill and kind of by Florida's example, that means if it can live in the southern tip of Florida, it's it's still considered invasive, even if you live up in South Dakota or North Dakota, right? Yep. There's no way under the Lacey Act to break it down by region or just say that it applies to this state and this state. It's, again, if they list it as injurious, which the reticulated python is an extremely good example, even the science that they used to list the reticulated python as injurious said that possibly, it didn't even say definitely, it said that possibly reticulated pythons could be invasive in the southern four counties of Florida and possibly the Brownsville area of Texas. That was it. Nowhere else in the country. And even those those two states already regulated it. The federal government listed them as injurious. And for a couple of years there, between 2015 and 2017, 
it was illegal to transport those animals across state lines. Interesting. I mean, it's the whole, I mean, the, the, the large constrictor thing set the, I guess, kind of set the precedent here for a number of reasons, but I mean, I don't think people realize that it's not about the large constrictors anymore. It's about pretty much everything. And even to get more specific, I mean, you have a lot of places like zoos and whatnot. And I mean, I even, I had a conversation with a biologist who was also concerned about this because he works with species in a certain population in, in one state. And I believe his lab is like a few miles over in another state. So they work, you know, cooperatively, obviously, to deal with this particular species. And what would it mean in a situation like that? I mean, how much red tape are you going to have to go through to be able to transfer species state to state for, for zoo or research purposes? Oh, yeah, it's, it's tons of red tape. There were actually a whole lot of researchers and biologists who were up in arms when that salamander listing happened because of what you just said, especially in the, the Northeast. I mean, those states are small. And you don't have to drive a whole lot of miles to be crossing state lines. And, and like you said, in certain situations, you may only be five or 10 miles. You know, your, your research site may be on one side of a state line and your laboratory is in the other. And that's just, that's just a whole lot of mess. And not only would you just, it's not as simple as just saying, oh, I'm a research facility. You know, you got you to gotta explain, you know, why you're doing this. And yeah, it's, it's a whole lot of red tape. Is it fair to say that when this language was put into this bill that it was gained, excuse me, not gained, but it was aimed more at the hobby aspect of it and not so much at the zoos and research facilities. And that was kind of an unintended casualty, would you say? I don't think that's it at all. I think the people that are pushing this are the, some of the animal rights groups should just have millions and millions of dollars to play with and, and lobby with. And I think they make friends in D.C., and then that's how these bills get introduced. I don't think they, they don't care about the collateral damage one bit. Understood. I I mean, look, let's just get it on the table. I mean, there's everybody listening knows there's an agenda in this country that wants to put an end not, not only to the things that we keep. I mean, they don't want me keeping dart frogs, but at the same time, ultimately, it's going to end up where it's going to come for other animals as well. I mean, it could very well end up being a pets breed, you know, breed specific legislation. I mean, this, this, in your opinion, this sets a bad precedent, right? Because this could be a catalyst to cracking down on any type of animal keeping, right? Oh, it, it absolutely could. And for those who aren't familiar with the animal rights agenda, if you're, if you keep an animal of any species, you really should educate yourself on what that means. And, and the groups behind it, because a lot of people just aren't aware it's happening. A lot of people don't even understand what animal rights means, but you really are <laughs> doing yourself no service at all if you don't understand what, what's happening. And we see it as, as reptile people, but it, it's dogs, cats, it's farm livestock, it, it's every live animal that's kept by humans as a target for these animal rights groups. Yeah, it's a whole, uh, no, it's a bad pun, but it's a rabbit hole to, to go down. But I mean, I mean, as a matter of just as personal opinion, and then we'll, we'll move on. I mean, it's always been my understanding that a lot of these organizations advocate for one thing, but they present themselves as being in this position of somehow authority. Like a lot of these organizations come off as being, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Almost like the authority on this. So whenever there's an issue with wildlife trade, one of these organizations, and I'm not going to name any of them, but one of these organizations automatically comes out as the expert source on it. So why am I taking advice about the captive care of an animal from an organization that wants to completely limit that? And they're going to give their whole biased opinion on why it's all wrong. And people tend to take that as being the credible source. That That's one of the things that I never understood. It's like, if I have a problem with my car and I go to the mechanic, I'm going to listen to the mechanic and what, what the mechanic has to say. I, I'm not going to listen to, you know, what the guy at 7-Eleven says. Yet, yeah, yet it that, seems to, it, that's, the, that's the logic that, that people seem to follow, which is incredibly disturbing. Yeah, that, that's certainly part of the issue. And it's not so much us. It's not that keepers want to listen to these people. It's that, again, you got to remember these, these groups have, ten, well, hundreds of millions of dollars to play with if you combine them all. And 
they go in and sell themselves to legislators or local politicians or local lawmakers, whoever it is, and say, hey, we'll do all this stuff for you for free. And then they'll get these, you know, overbearing regulations and bans in place because they're claiming that they're going to do the work for these, whether it's local level or state level, whatever level it is. But yeah, that's how they get their foot in the door. And <laughs> to speak on how expert they actually are again i won't i won't name a name but i was in a room at this was a city level a ban i was in a room with one of the largest animal rights groups in the country who introduced their reptile expert their reptile expert was calling on a ban on large constrictor snakes she could not name a single species of large constrictor snake the city asked her right there at this round table meeting uh, what species she wanted banned and she said oh i don't know what species they are i'll have to get my notes and get back to you <laughs> and she she was introduced as a reptile expert for this organization it doesn't surprise me but if we hadn't been in the room i mean that's i mean that, that they run the show it, in the lobbying world we often hear the world is run by those who show up and and that's why you got to speak up on these things because if the legislators don't hear from you they're only going to listen to the other side and that's how we get these bad laws passed well, that's a good point. I mean, you raise a good argument because someone, and and not to be completely like, I mean, I don't want to look at legislatures in a completely adversarial way because it, it's, in a way, you can't really blame people for being ignorant. And I don't mean ignorant in like, like a, you know, like being ignorant to the point of stupidity, well, which we could also argue, but um, I, I mean, ignorant, I mean, not knowing. I mean, for example, like I used the mechanic before. I mean, I have some knowledge of, of, of automotive repairs, but I mean, look, I can't rebuild a starter engine, so I'm going to take the mechanic's word for it. But at the same time, it's like someone could go in and just say, like you said, what, what species should we, we ban? And the person could say pythons. And the politician's going to say, oh, yeah, pythons are huge. Well, in the meantime, we've got children's pythons, which are tiny. So it just seems like, like you just said, it, it just takes the wrong person to go in there and say, what someone wants to hear, the politician makes an association, and then it's just then the, the, the dominoes are already in motion. Oh, you're absolutely right. And I actually use that exact same example with the mechanic all the time. And we're all ignorant on some things. I'm ignorant. I'm, you don't want me fixing your car engine. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm ignorant on car engines. It's okay to use that word. It's not necessarily an insult. And exactly, I mean, again, you nailed it. The exact same thing with politicians. You can't expect a politician to know about all these things that people come in their offices talking about. So when an animal rights group comes in and talks about, oh, there's, there's not a, a good breeder in the U.S. of puppies, we need to, we need to ban dog breeders. And unless someone comes in and corrects them, they're getting that misinformation. I was just on a call last week and there were animal rights groups and telling city officials that, that puppy breed, that dog breeders bred their female dogs six times a year. It's biologically impossible to do that. But this this was a city council person who actually regurgitated that because he believed what the animal rights groups had told him about breeding dogs six times a year. Again, doesn't it, it nothing surprises me, you know. I, I we rely so heavily on, on parroted information and like I always like when people tell me I've done my research, I've done my research, I say that's great. But have you looked for things that can disprove your argument? You know what I mean? And it's just yep. like, if you think something's wrong, it probably is. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious about where, where does this bill now in the Senate? Because it passed the House of Representatives. What's the current status of the bill as of today? I mean, for anyone listening after the fact, it's, it's uh, March of 2022, the beginning of March. So if you listen to this later, we'll have to reevaluate it. But I mean, where is the bill presently? Has there been any changes to it? Has there been any different wording for it? Yeah, this is going to get a little bit deep, but uh, again, if you don't catch it on audio, you can check it out at usarc.org, but there's quite a bit going on with the bill. So the America Competes Act, USARC was never opposed to that, so let's get that out of the way. We were opposed to Section 71102, which contains these Lacey Act amendments. That 2,900-page bill turned into a 3,610-page bill and, and went to the Senate. The, the America Competes Act is not going to pass. So USARC never said that that had a good chance of passing. Again, from the whole time we started talking about this, we're just concerned with these Lacey Act amendments. So unfortunately, I've seen online some people even saying USARC is misleading people, which we're not. 
again, we're not trying to stop the America Competes Act. What's going to happen with that? It's going to be reconciled with the Senate bill, which was Senate Bill S-1260. We announced that bill, too, on January 28th. And we also announced S-1260 does not contain these Lacey Act amendments, fortunately. But these two bills are going to be merged in what's called a conference committee. It's called a reconciliation. So what's going to happen initially is that the language from S-1260, which is USICA, the U.S. Innovation Competitiveness Act, that language is going to replace the America Competes Act language. But we have to keep making noise because we do not want these Lacey Act amendments from the House bill going into this reconciled bill. So I'm curious, since since the bill, well, all right, the whole timeline of this was the bill kind of became, uh, well, public knowledge because U.S. ARC was, you know, brought it out to the, the greater community's awareness. And then it passed kind of rapidly in the House of Representatives, and then it kind of went before the Senate. To your knowledge, I mean, I know that there's been a lot of outreach from people to, I mean, originally it was the House of Representatives, but that seemed to be a little too little too late. And now I know there's been a uh, an, an effort underway for people to contact their senators. Have you heard any feedback from Washington or, or from anyone who's, uh, I guess, in that circle about has any of the efforts that people have made to reach out to their senators, has any of that been received by them? And if so, has there been any kind of response? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we're definitely hearing in D.C. that they're hearing from from reptile people. Obviously, I'm not leaving anybody else out. We're not the only group talking about it. So they're they're hearing from fish and bird people, too. But again, since it's U.S. Arc they're talking to, they're going to mention the reptile people. So, yeah, they're definitely getting our our messages and I hope everyone is not just emailing, which I know they're not. It's important to make phone calls and even snail mail and fax letters too. Um, in-person meetings are definitely top if you can make that happen, but they're definitely hearing from us. And the good thing about the current situation is that, again, this was attached to an economic stimulus bill, which it should not have been in there. So the Senate has a little bit stricter rules on that. So the House bill is a little bit more lenient about a bill having to specifically be about what its stated purpose is. Um, the Senate can't really do that like the House can. So this probably is not going to be included in these bills, but there's there's a little more to the story. And it's really important that you keep making noise on it, not only to stop it from being snuck in again in this reconciled bill, but to keep this language from coming back. So, I mean, by and large, then it, things are, I mean, people, it's it's looking more positive than it was, I guess, a, a month or two ago, right? Well, certainly because of the the outpouring of opposition, the the only the flip side of that is we're making noise, but the other side's making noise too. So, you know, who's who's going to win that battle? Then I don't know. Obviously, there's more to it than just people sending in emails and letters. Um, but that's so helpful when USR goes in and meets with these legislators because they've been hearing from their constituents, so they want to hear what we have to say. What is the best way for someone to reach out to a legislator in a way that is respectful, effective, and maintains the integrity of the individual and the hobby? Because I've seen in my travels, people get emotional and they say and do dumb things. I mean, we, we, we all know, we're all aware of it. This is a, this is a big community. We live in a viral world. If someone wanted to continue to support this and reach out in a way that, like I said, is, is, you know, you have to, you have to be respectful. You have to, you can't cuss people out. You can't do any of that. Is there any guidance from us arc in terms of how to communicate your concerns to the legislature in a way that's, you know, not going to make you look like a complete nut. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, US, US ARC, we make it as easy as we can. I mean, we have sample messaging. You can use that as an, an email, a letter, or a fax. We even have a couple sentences to say if you're doing phone calls. Obviously, you're going to have to be a little more comfortable with this stuff if you go and have an in-person meeting, but those are hugely helpful, um, even if you just meet with a member of staff, which is probably who you're going to talk to. Um, but staffers are assigned, you know, specific bills and topics. So they'll be savvy on what you're talking about. But yeah, you, as you said, you absolutely cannot be unprofessional and, and call these legislators names. I know that 
you know, this is an emotional topic for a lot of us, but that does so much more damage than good. Um, one of the big issues is that when U.S. art goes in to talk to legislators, if they've been getting belittled and yelled at by reptile people, that's a huge hurdle that's going to take 5, 10, 15 minutes of our time rather than talking about what we should be talking about. Just say, hey, we're not all a bunch of crazies. We're just here to to call you names. So, yeah, you absolutely cannot cannot do that. It's one of those things where I feel like we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. I, I, I mean, if I'm always, my belief is, and, and again, I'm sorry, I, I promise everyone I would try to keep this as objective as possible, but um, I got to insert a little opinion here. Um, <laughs> I feel like any group is always judged by its worst member. And it's concerning to me that there's an element in this universe that we're in that sets a bad example. And is it hard getting past that stereotype to get an audience with some of these people or are they, are they more receptive? You know, when you walk in and you're, you know, you're wearing a suit and you're clear and concise in your purpose, or do they kind of think that you're going to come in with like an anaconda around your neck and like no teeth? I mean, how, how do you develop a relationship with these people that keeps credibility, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, unfortunately, that's part of it. I mean, you just got to suit up and, and, and show up. So, yeah, the, the suit is definitely a big part of it. But U.S. ARC, a big chunk of our revenue every year goes to an extremely good federal lobbyist. Um, so obviously that's that helps go a long way when you have meetings in D.C., um, but yeah, you, you absolutely have to be professional and, and walk in and, and have your messaging ready to go. Now being a 506, that's a unique type of charity where you're allowed to lobby, right? Whereas with other types of charities, I think it's like the 503, you're limited in terms of what you can do. So you're in a unique position to really like your whole, the whole job of US ARC is, is legal, adv legal advocacy, right? Right. And you, you, yeah, you were right. We have to have that designation as a 501c6. If we were a 501c3, we would lose our, our nonprofit status. It's interesting. I, I, I was doing a little research for the show and I was running, I didn't realize how many different types of not-for-profits there were. And, um, I, it's, it's, it's interesting that just that, you know, you're able to um, have a charity that's essentially like almost like a legal defense fund for us. But uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a member of US ARC. I'm, I'm a proud member. I, I pay my, you know, I pay my dues every year. I think that it, as a hobbyist, it's important to put into the system that, that protects you the same way that you would, I guess, I mean, the matter of personal opinion, I don't know how people feel about unions or whatnot, but if you're in a union, you pay your union duels and the union protects your interest. Have you seen an influx in support from the greater community, the more that these issues come out? We honestly, the, the increase from this federal bill has not been huge because we actually had a quite a big increase last year. And that certainly the credit of that goes just to the people with social media followings. Just we're talking a lot more about us arc and the importance of us arc. Um, so certainly the, you know, a lot of those people may, they may be renewing this year because of the, the federal bill and, and the other state bill alerts that we've put out. But yeah, we just had a, a huge increase last year. And again, that, that, that was the only part of the equation that really changed was just a lot more people with social media presence and content creators were talking about us arc. I mean, it does seem like there's a lot more people content. I mean, myself included, I guess, content wise that are um, proponents of, of, of U.S. ARC and, I guess, creating awareness of it. But if someone wanted to become a member of U.S. ARC, what's, like, what's the process to become a member? Oh, super easy. All you got to do is go to usarc.org, and it's right there. It says become a member. <laughs> you click the become a member button, and, and there's different choices. It starts at there's a $5 a month category. There's a $20 a year, what we call a student membership, but you don't have to be a student um, all the way up to a thousand dollar gold level. So we've got everything from $5 to a thousand dollars. And I'm wearing my, my US ARC t-shirt from nice. last year, <laughs> which is, it's, I got to tell you, this is like the best quality t-shirt. I, I was, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't join to get the t-shirt. It was, you know, just something that you guys did last year and it's like, I'm still wearing it. It's such a nice t-shirt, but, nice. um, 
it's it is nice to be able to support an organization that that advocates for us i'm i'm trying to think of um i guess how do i put this what what is the like the immediate future going to hold i mean i know you said that things are looking somewhat better in in the senate but i mean is there anything else that's coming on the horizon that we need to worry about i mean i know that legislation in the u.s kind of a lot of it takes place around this time of year but is there anything that you see on the horizon in the next couple of months or at least on a federal level that we should be aware of yeah on the federal level i mean this one's a big one even if it doesn't pass as part of this economic strength package it's still a big issue because the first time we saw this language was actually last year so there's a senate bill senate bill 626 from florida senator rubio um that that it's it's a standalone bill that has this language so honestly that's why we have to take advantage of all of the outpouring of opposition to this now because even though it may not pass as this economic strength bill that language is still floating around as a standalone bill so the more noise we make about it as part of the the competes act and the reconciled bill uh, it's just going to behoove us in the future well that's really depressing i oh man <laughs> well, i know it's, unfortunately it's, that's that's the reality of it yeah. yeah it's it's part of the it's part of the fight i it, it's I, I don't think that this is something that's ever going to go away. I mean, this just seems like we've been predisposed to it the second we started keeping these things, but I don't know. I mean, do you remember a point where all this kind of started? I mean, I remember back in the heyday when the large constrictor bands started. I mean, was that kind of what set this all in motion or was it just a combination of things? Uh, this was going on way before then, unfortunately. And, and, you know, people can say I'm a conspiracy theorist, but I promise you I'm not. It's it's animal rights groups that are bef- behind the, the vast majority of this stuff. I mean, people just don't realize how much money these groups have, uh, even sometimes have problems identifying them. And I mean, it, the, their work goes back to the 60s and 70s when they were passing bans. I think the first one from one of the biggest groups was a ban on dove hunting. And you think, well, that's hunting, not reptiles. But this animal rights is an industry. Um, they they learn how to make money on it. They fundraise off of these legislative efforts, and it's it's money in the bank for them. <laughs> the really sad part is these people that claim to be out there helping animals who are that, – that's not what they're doing. They're misleading people, but they are making far more money off of animals than any person breeding reptiles ever thought about making. I mean, they it, it's just crazy how much money these people make. Yeah, I've um... – I've, I've explored all that in a tremendous amount of detail myself. And it's interesting when you, many people are, are good natured in their intentions. And I think that people like to, it helps people sleep at night knowing that they've done something, I guess, to affect a positive change in the world. And I feel like a lot of these organizations prey on that need in people to accomplish their own ends. And it's, if you look, I mean, if you, if you're able to put that aside and I mean, I've spent a lot of time, you know, looking into this stuff. Cause I'm always, I'm always curious about this, you know, and if you really look into a lot of this, you can find that it's very, very different from what it looks like on his face. I mean, I, I don't want to get in too much detail cause I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get too off topic with this, but if you look, you're going to find it, you know what I mean? And I'm sure you know much better than I do that, um, you know, a lot of these places are not really doing what the people think that they're doing. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> There's all kinds of the, the largest groups have been exposed on how much of their money actually goes to help animals. And it's, I, I would like to say it's pennies on the dollar for some of them. It's not even a penny on the dollar donated. It's just, it, it's unreal the scam that it is and how they keep getting away with it. Yeah. I'm curious as to how much that person who sat in on that meeting and couldn't name a constrictor was, was, was paying, but <laughs> way more than me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Well, I mean, Phil, I, I've, I've kind of asked you everything I was, I was curious about, but are there any, misinformation or any rumors or anything like that that you want to dispel because i mean i've heard a few i've heard that people are afraid that their animals are going to get seized or that they're going to get taken away i mean are there any like far out rumors or anything like that that you want to set the record straight about 
Yeah, I'll set the record on any of that that you can think of, and that's one of them. And uh, again, U.S. Arc has never put that information out there or misled in that direction. This certainly this is not any type of ban on ownership or possession. Again, it's a ban on talking about importation and transportation across state lines, which will have huge enough impacts. But yeah, it, it's not going to create any ban on possession unless, again, some of the states follow suit and kind of create blacklist based off of the the whitelist that will be created. You may see some of that, but as far as this federal bill, that none of that is going to happen. So, but at the same token, then, I mean, your state, your state laws obviously still apply. It's not like, I mean, if, if, well, I, I, let's just say for assuming the whitelist, well, now I'm, now I'm confused. I guess if, okay. well, I just realized something. Yeah, if, if they do create a whitelist, it really won't matter what's legal state by state because of that'll apply for every state. I was going, I was going to say, that um, obviously your state laws will be the same, meaning if an axolotl is illegal in California, it's going to stay in, illegal in California. But I guess if they list it in California and it's injurious there, then it could be anywhere. So, sorry, I went around in a little, went around in a little circle no, there. That's, that's okay. But yeah, you're right. Straight, state laws can be more restrictive than federal laws. So again, this is only going to apply to movement between the states. Um, it's not going to apply to what happens within each state. I'm curious about, I know that, U.S. Arc is a national thing. Now, it, there's a U.S. Arc Florida, right? Can you explain the distinction between U.S. Arc and U.S. Arc Florida? Yeah, so it's a, it's a separate group. Obviously, uh, I worked with them to help them get set up, but they're they're their own entity. So they're their own 501c6. They do their own fundraising. All the money donated U.S. Arc Florida goes to their expenses, and they're on lawsuit number two. And I think just in the last two years, they've They've already gone well over half a million dollars in legal fees. <laughs> it's just crazy once you get into to big lawsuits, how fast the money goes. So, yes, yeah, certainly anybody in Florida, you, you need to be supporting U.S. Arc Florida because they are doing a lot of good work. They're only about two years old. Um, so obviously there was some growing pains, but every single dollar that's donated there is is going to fight that cause. The board of directors isn't taking any of that money actually at least the first year, the board of directors down there funded over half of the, the revenue that went into U.S. Arc Florida. So they're doing a good job down there. And quickly, I forgot this part. The reason we did a U.S. Arc Florida, which they chose the name, it was totally up to them what to name themselves, is because we saw the writing on the wall and what was going to happen in Florida. Uh, the Fish and Wildlife Commission down there is just anti-reptile trade. And we knew it was going to be a struggle down there for years. And Obviously, U.S. Arc as a national group can't spend all our money and resources in one state. Um, so we are still doing a whole lot of work down there with U.S. Arc Florida, but we saw the need to get it get a group started down there, and they're doing a good job. Are there other states that are kind of following Florida's suit? I know that some of the bands, like Tegu bands and whatnot, have kind of crept up into Georgia and whatnot. Are there other states that are becoming as concerning as Florida is when it comes to lawsuits? Yeah, there, there's not. And honestly, I don't recommend that most states create uh, an archetype organization because there have actually been quite a few and they all just fizzle out and die. You know, you get one proposal, one state bill or whatever it is, and then everybody gets in an uproar and wants to start a group. And then that group may even get started. But then when there's nothing that follows up, no additional legislative work to do, you know, the groups just fizzle out and die. By far, what I would suggest most states do is just get a, get a good herp society, you know, go out and do field herping or whatever and just get organized in that front. And then if a legislative battle does come up, at least you have an email and phone chain and a membership that you can relay that alert quickly. Um, so that's that's what I recommend to every state to do, not create an ARC organization, but just get a good herp society. That's a good idea. I mean, I guess you don't want, what's that expression, too many cooks spoil the broth, right? So. You want to want to have, I guess, like a, kind of a united uh, front against all this. Well, Phil, um, is there anything that you wanted to end off on when we were kind of at the end, but I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to just, um, you know, get anything else out that you think will be relevant for the listeners? No, I mean, we covered, certainly covered the federal bill. Um, so anything else, just watch US ARC for for updates even if you don't have the money to become a member right away it's it's free to sign up for our email newsletter on our website just type in your email um, you can obviously follow us on social media so on on even twitter we put the alerts and then also 
Facebook and Instagram, obviously. So easy to follow there, but honestly, it's more important to get the emails because you may miss something on social media, but at least that email will come to your inbox. Um, so that should certainly be the priority. You know, I had one last thing pop up actually, when you mentioned the emails, I get emails, obviously, well, everyone I guess does for the different States. Now let's just say for argument's sake that, I mean, I live in New York and I know I get a lot of updates about, um, uh, I've been getting a lot about North Carolina lately. If you're in a different state, is there any way that you can become involved to support a, a different state if it's just at a state level or are you kind of just um, uh, out of the loop? Yeah, honestly, it's it's best. You really want people from within that state making the noise because that's who legislators want to hear from. It's fine if you're out of state to do something, but uh, again, sometimes it can kind of muddy the waters and, you know, we don't want too many people from out of state chiming in on this stuff because if they track it and legislators say, oh, we had, you know, 50 people from from Montana contact us and this is a North Carolina issue, obviously that's bad. <laughs> you want you want people from within the state. So, uh, I mean, if, if you can some, somehow tie it affecting you, whether you work with businesses from within a state that's being affected or whatever it is, or if you have family in that state, um, you can certainly still chime in on this stuff. Um, but if you can't do that, just, just share it around and, and spread it on social media, because even though you, like you said, you may be in New York and it's a North Carolina issue. I guarantee you that all the reptile people in North Carolina don't know about it. So the more people can help us spread that messaging and alerts on social media, the, the better it is. And that's a good point. I mean, this, this whole thing traveled like wildfire. I mean, I'm not a big social media person, but the people that I do follow, I mean, on YouTube and on Instagram, whether it's. I mean, this thing, I mean, did, did that, did this thing go in the direction that you wanted in terms of public awareness? Cause I felt like this was everywhere at once. Whereas I mean, in the past going back like 10, 15 years, I mean, I only found out about stuff like this at the local reptile store. I mean, are you happy with the, the attention that's been drawn to it by social media? Yeah, obviously it's, it's a little more work on our end and we're honestly not good at, at social media. We obviously get our stuff out there, but I mean, we don't have the following and the presence of all these content creators and, you know, the big YouTubers do. So to get them to help has just been hugely beneficial to us because otherwise our, our messaging wouldn't be seen. Um, so it's that that's why we're that's why you're seeing it so much is, again, because of all the, the social media people who have picked us up in the last year or two and help spread our messaging out there. Well, that's good. There's, I mean, there's a lot of good people out there who I know are. Um very, very pro hobby. And at the same time, um, have a very good public standing in, in the hobby. You know what I mean? Like there's just, there's some people out there who are really like doing the good work and they also have a decent following, which, which helps as well. So, but well, Phil, I, I really want to thank you really just with all sincerity for, for taking the time to, to talk with me tonight. I had so many questions and I'm, I'm happy that you were able to answer them all. And, um, I'm going to include a link in the uh, show notes. So if anybody wants to find US Arc's website, and I, I would I would wholeheartedly encourage you to become a member. It, it's a no-brainer. If you're in this world, you you want to support this hobby, become a member. This is the organization that advocates for us. This is the organization that's going to protect our rights to be able to work with these things. And for those of you who are in businesses and whatnot, people who deal with reptiles in a professional manner, you're in this as well. It's not obviously not just the hobbyists because you're the ones who are breeding with and supplying these things. And obviously people who might be on the fringe. I mean, people who work in zoos and research. I know I have a fair amount of you who listen as well. I and mean, again, it's not just, this is not just a reptile store issue. This is, this is everybody. This is like all hands on deck. We're all involved. So, I mean, again, I want to encourage everyone to do so. So Phil, it's, it's been a pleasure. I, again, I, I keep thanking you, but I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and, and, setting uh, you know setting everything straight about this oh absolutely thank you and, and thank you for allowing me to come on and help spread the message so i appreciate that no it's my pleasure all right everyone i want to thank phil for coming on and being my my guest um you know i know it was kind of a serious show but it's a serious topic and um you know as i said earlier um the best way to handle this is with um you know being you know credible calm level-headed respectful and effective so um, again, I encourage you guys go visit USARC's link. I have the link in the show description. Become a member. Just 
you know, you want to be part of something, you got to support it. So other than that, we're going to get back to our normal content for next week. I, I, I know I had a couple of episodes lined up that I had to kind of push, but, um, given the present state of affairs, this was a, kind of a priority. So, um, uh, if you were expecting a different episode this week, again, I, I apologize. I know this kind of came out a little bit later, but, um, you know, I wanted to take the time to get this out as fast as possible. So other than that, I want to thank you all for listening. You guys are the best catch up with you again soon.